it always is. It's especially good today. We're enjoying the cool weather after a series of hot weeks, and so I know we're glad to be out today to worship God in spirit and in truth. You know, the one and only true God is contrasted with idols in a dramatic fashion throughout the Scriptures. One of the greatest contrasts between God, who we worship, and those that are idols is that God reveals His will to us. In Psalm 115 and verse 5, the psalmist, speaking of idols, says that they have mouths, but they do not speak. It's impressive when we read scriptures like Hebrews, the first chapter, that tells us that God has always been speaking. He's been speaking in various times and in various ways to the fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it speaks about how God has revealed things that we would have never been able to know. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. We can't know, but God reveals and therefore now we can know. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The phrase inspiration of God is a translation of one Greek word, theonoustos, and it's a powerful word, God breathed. These are the very words of God. Don't you ever forget that. Don't fall in love with the idea of a still small voice that those in the denominations speak about as they follow their feelings instead of the facts of Scripture. These are the very words of God finally delivered to us. And they will stand true for eternity. I think those things are very familiar to us. And that's why we're all here this morning. But I want us to think about what the very act of revelation teaches us. Not any specific revelation. We can have a study of any part of scripture and come to know what it means. But just think for a moment with me this morning about the fact that God has revealed. On its very face, it teaches us great and important truths. And the sad thing is is that especially in the world, but even there are some in the church who are starting to forget some of these very basic implications that come with the fact that God has revealed something to us. And we need to remember them before we ever even open the Scriptures to study something specifically, these particular points about what the very act of Revelation teaches us. Obviously, the fact that God has revealed means that He wants us to know something. He wants us to know His will. In Psalm 19, the psalmist speaks about the revelation of God on two fronts. And it's very clear that God did not reveal Himself or His will to us that we would struggle to know, but to clarify things for us, to bring us out of darkness into light. Consider the words of Psalm 19, especially in verse 4, speaking about the matters of creation revealing and speaking of God's existence, it says in verse, uh, let's say verse 2, day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Everyone can see and know that God exists. Their line has gone out all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It tells me God wants us to know. But notice beginning in verse 7, he transitions into the more specific revelation of God in His words that He has given. And it speaks about the law of the Lord and how it converts the soul. It can change minds and hearts 
about the testimony of the Lord. And it makes the uh, simple wise. The statutes of the Lord, they are understood and therefore lead to the rejoicing of the heart. The commandment of the Lord, it's pure. And what it does is it enlightens the eyes. The judgments of the Lord, the righteous, the fear of the Lord endures. But notice verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It tells us something that we can understand, and we can live our lives accordingly to it. If God's revealing something to us, make no mistake about it, He wants us to be able to know that. In Deuteronomy 30, and verse 11, the uh, second recitation of this law, Moses made sure to stress to the children of Israel that you have no excuse in your disobedience. God has revealed His will in such a way where He wants you to know and you can know. He says, this command which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Yes, if God revealed, He revealed so that we can know. Unequivocally, we should never doubt it. He's made it to where we can know. That's something that there are even brethren that are doubting. Whether we can understand the entirety of Scripture, that's certainly what Catholicism tries to teach you. And they tell you that the priest can only know, and so you close your Bible and you listen to them. The denominations speak about how you can't understand God's will as you are, but there has to be a miraculous change within you wrought by the Holy Spirit directly. That's foolishness. The Bible makes very clear that God has created man and He knows how man is, and He has revealed His will in a way that is adapted to how He created man. Otherwise, we have God making extra steps. It's almost like God fails, and then He tries to change things to to rectify his wrongs and his past failures. From the very beginning, God created man exactly as he intended. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, he created man and woman in his image. And then in verse 31, like at the end of all other days of creation, he saw that it was very good. And this is not a moral term. It simply is stating that they were perfectly created the way that God intended them to be. He did not make a mistake. Every faculty that we need to understand what He would give us has been given us at the very beginning when He created man the way He did. He created them for a purpose, and He fulfilled in His creation of man what He intended. That purpose is very easily known by reading Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. The all of man, Solomon says, is to fear God and keep His commandments. I want to tell you that if God created man, He saw that man was good, that is, He did not mess up in His creation. And man's purpose is to fear God and keep His commandments. Then God is going to, and He did, give man commandments that can be understood exactly as man stands before Him when those commandments are revealed. In Genesis 2, then, we see the first commands that are given. Of every tree of the garden you may freely aid, in verse 16, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did he understand that? Did Adam and Eve understand that? Or did something have to happen for them to come to an understanding? God created them and revealed his will exactly how he intended. In Isaiah 32, we see a prophecy which looks forward to the messianic 
age where a king would reign in righteousness and he would be a refuge for the people. But notice what is described in verse 3 of Isaiah 32 about those who would be subjects of that kingdom. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. And notice in verse 5, the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. That is, they're going to be able to know and understand, therefore be able to speak plainly, and they will no longer call evil good or good evil. They will speak truthfully because they have been revealed God's Word and understand God's Word. Yes, if God has revealed, He wants us to know, and He's revealed His will so that we can know. But also we need to understand by God's revelation that every single part of His revelation is eternally significant. There is no insignificant revelation. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He leaves nothing out of that. All is all-inclusive of what God has revealed. And be impressed by what Peter said in 2 Peter 3. After he speaks about the Old Testament prophets in chapter 1 and how that prophetic word is even more sure than an eyewitness testimony, it's confirmed. And its origin is not from man, but it's from God. He puts the apostolic written word on plane with that prophetic word. He says in chapter 3, he's writing to remind them that they may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In chapter 3 as well, in verse 15, he speaks about the writings of Paul, in which some things are hard to understand, but then he goes on and says that some people twist them as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Peter's writings, Paul's writings, all the apostles' writings are inspired just as the Old Testament. There is not one insignificant part of Scripture. All of it is God-breathed. Jesus said that every jot and tittle would be fulfilled. And be impressed even by what James says in James chapter 2 and verse 10. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. The one who said you shall not murder also said you shall not commit adultery. If you do one without the other, you've still broken the law because there is no insignificant revelation. And also related to this, understand that if there's no insignificant revelation... God intended to reveal what He revealed. There was no accident. He's very intentional. He knows exactly what He wants, and He knows exactly what man needs to hear. But what that also tells us is that as if His revelation is intentional, then His silence is intentional as well. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, Moses says that the secret things, that is simply those things that are not revealed to us, These secret things, they belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. No insignificant revelation. But those secret things, whatever they are, there are things that we don't know, I assure you. But those secret things, God has not revealed intentionally. That tells me that if what is revealed is intentionally revealed that we may do, then what is kept secret is an intentional keeping of secret that we may not do. It would go a long way for us to understand that in the church. That's the very fundamental basis of authority, is that we only do what the law has revealed. The Hebrew writer makes that clear with the fact of Jesus' high priesthood, how it had to be according to the order of Melchizedek. The law had to be changed 
Because, verse 13 of Hebrews 7, he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning a priesthood. He left that out intentionally. He only said of the tribe of Levi, of the house of Aaron, and he did not give any other tribe. We can say the same thing about how we observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Acts 20 and verse 7, by example, is the only time component of the Lord's Supper that we see in all the Scriptures. And because God has revealed that and He has not revealed any other time, we know that it's mere speculation to reason that they may have observed it on another day. And it's presumptuous to then go ahead and do it because God intentionally left all other days out. Yes, God wants us to know And He wants us to know and has revealed it that we can know. And we must simply seek to know what He has revealed. But it also tells us, that is the act of revelation, that we are obligated to know. It's not just that God wants us to know. He requires that we know. And I want to tell you that if He requires that we know, then we absolutely can know. In Acts the 17th chapter, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the unknown God, describes how He created everyone so that they could seek Him and grope for Him, that they might find Him. That's why we exist. We're obligated to search for Him. And when He gives to us, we're obligated to search that in and of itself and understand what He says. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, then, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to present himself approved to God by being diligent. The King James Version translates spudazo there as study, which is not an accurate translation, but the concept is there because he says, you are diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be shamed. How? By rightly dividing the word of truth. Our pursuit of knowledge is essential to our living right before God and pleasing Him. He's given us exactly what we can do and must do to be pleasing to Him. Therefore, we are obliged to pursue it and perform it. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul encouraged him in verse 11, in contrast, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11, in contrast to the pursuit of riches, to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and impatience. How would he do that? How do you pursue those characteristics, those virtues? He told him in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Till I come, give attention to reading and exhortation and to doctrine. He said, Meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine and continue in them. For in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Yes, if God has revealed, He wants us to know, we are obligated to know, and therefore the pursuit of that knowledge according to the Scriptures should be our greatest goal. I want us to notice that in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul exhorted the brethren there to be imitators of God. We've talked in Bible class recently from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, how we would imitate Christ. And one of the things we looked at was in Ephesians 4 and verse 20. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him, been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, and you put on that righteousness and holiness of the truth is what another translation states and what the Greek is trying to get across. You know Christ and can imitate Christ through the truth. Now he says be imitators of God. I want us to notice the progression of this context. 
He speaks about all of these other things that you should avoid, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. It shouldn't even be named among you. And notice what he says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There are words that you should follow, but there are empty words that you should not follow to the degree, verse 7, that you are not partakers with them. We're familiar with verses 8 through 14, which speak about fellowship. And now we have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We expose them as those who are children of light. But notice how that connects with these empty words. You don't have fellowship with these people who are teaching false doctrine. For you were once in darkness, verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord, so you are to walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Notice that's parenthetical. We can read it this way in verse 8. Walk as children of light, verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. I want to tell you, as a child of God, the way you walk accordingly to who you are is to always find out what is acceptable to the Lord. Avoid the empty words, find out what is acceptable to the Lord. And that's when he says in verse 15, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Therefore, verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He says in verse 18, you do that by being filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 is the parallel to this passage. He speaks about being filled with the Word of Christ, letting it dwell in us richly. It is our duty to know God's will. Not, not Harry's duty, not JT's duty, not the elder's duty. It, it is the duty of every single one of us as children of light to find out what is acceptable to the Lord. And we're able to do that. You know, there are some in the church who act like we are unable to understand the will of the Lord. And then someone kind of thinks that doesn't sound good enough. And so maybe we're able, but some things are not sufficiently clear. And I think that those two things are gone back and forth on, and and people flip-flop on that because they're trying to find an excuse that would not be an affront to God, that would not bring the blame on God. But I want to tell you, That if we're unable to understand, that means God has failed in His creation of man. He has created us in a way where we are unable to understand. If we try to avoid that by saying, well, not all Scripture is sufficiently clear, then we've charged God with an inability to communicate clarity. Certainly we are able and we can understand the will of the Lord. It's not a question of ability or clarity. But let me suggest to you that it's a question of our honesty. I think that Luke's record of the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8 makes this very clear. In verse 4, he begins to speak the parable. Notice what he says at the second part of verse 8. Luke 8 and verse 8, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is both a command to hear what he's saying and an invitation to hear what he's saying. And it's interesting to note what the apostles would then go on to say in verse 8 or 9. What does this parable mean? And Jesus speaks these words that are often misunderstood. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now before we consider what he means by that, I want us to notice what he says in verse 16 of this same text. After he's given the explanation of the parable of the sower that they asked for, He explains what revelation is all about, what Jesus is trying to do in teaching, period. But even in teaching in these parables, he says in verse 16, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. Now, you may remember that he says something similar in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But he's not teaching the same principle. He's just using the same illustration. There we are to let our light shine as we're disciples of the Lord. Here he's simply saying that I'm not revealing something to you so that it can still be hidden from you. God doesn't speak to us so that we can stay in the dark. He makes sure that everyone can know that is if they want to know. Verse 17, he continues to explain. Nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. If, if he's revealed it, it's intended to be understood and known and applied. But I want to tell you that the parable of the sower here stands as an object lesson, an illustration of these broader principles that we have just discussed. If God gives us a word, then we want to under, or he, we can understand it, and he's made it to where we can. We know the parable of the sower, that the seed is the word of God, verse 11. Notice the soil and how it's described that will understand, receive, and apply it. The ones, verse 15, that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The New American Standard Bible renders it, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. Jesus is saying, when I reveal these words to you, they are revealed with the intention that you understand. The only factor in your understanding is your honesty. And I think that helps us understand what he says in verse 10. To you it has been given to know, to the rest it is given in parables. You might be interested to note what is implied in verse 9. What does this parable mean? They didn't understand it immediately. But he says, to you it has been given to know. What's the difference? They're honest people and they asked him, what does it mean? They didn't just walk away. They didn't refuse to investigate. They wanted to know and he gave them the knowledge. This is what it means by verse 18. Take heed how you hear. You're hearing with honesty or dishonesty. For whoever has to him more will be given. And whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. They had, they wanted more, Jesus gave more. Others thought they had, they didn't want what Jesus had, and he took away everything they had. That's why he spoke in parables. The people who wanted to know, they would investigate, they would search, and they would find. The people who didn't want to know, they would never even see any of the spiritual principles. But it's a matter of honesty or dishonesty. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that when I write to you, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Which means that if we're obligated to know and we can know that willful ignorance out of dishonesty and self-deception is always condemned. You cannot trick yourself into getting into heaven. Hosea 4.6, the writer revealed, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge, he says. In Romans the 10th chapter, in verses 16 through 21, the Apostle Paul is explaining why the Jews have been rejected. And it's, it's not for any reason that God is unfaithful. It's just because they did not want what God offered. If they had obeyed the gospel, they would have been saved. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He said, have they not heard? And he quotes Psalm 19. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. You have no excuse. God told you exactly what his will was. You simply have rejected it. Why? Isaiah says, or Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask me. You mean the Gentiles are included with the Jews in this gospel promise? 
We don't want that. You heard it. You knew it. The reason why you're rejected is because you have rejected God's word to Israel, he says. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Willful ignorance. It says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, verse 3. But make no mistake about it, they intended to be ignorant. They intended to reject God's will. In Isaiah, the 30th chapter, speaking about the Israelite party in that nation who wanted to make an alliance with Egypt as they saw the threat of Assyria on the horizon, the writer tells them to not trust in horses and chariots. In a later chapter, don't trust in flesh. Trust in Jehovah your God. He is the one you should fear. But notice what he begins to say in verse 8 of Isaiah 30. He says, Now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. You know, there's a lot of people who continue to do that today. I know what the Word of God says, but I don't want to hear that. Tell me something that makes me feel at peace in my sin. It doesn't matter what your prophets will prophesy to you about this alliance working out, how you convince yourself that the will of God is not what's best for us, but this is what's best for us. Because the Word of God will stand regardless of your own deception, and you'll be judged by it. Notice in verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And he continues to describe the destruction because they've rejected Jehovah and His word. And they've relied on false promises. God revealed, so we are obligated to know. We can know. And if we decide we don't want to know, it's going to bite us. And lastly, and a little quickly, if we are given the revelation of God, not only are we obligated to know and can know, but we're obligated to act on that and obey. And brethren, if we can know it, and God has created us sufficiently, we can obey it at all times. There's not one time when you or I have sinned where it was an impossibility to do what God had said. Even under the old law, those things God gave them, they were unbearable as you have recorded in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Neither we or our fathers could bear it. Not because the commands were just too hard. God gave them commands that they could fulfill consistently. It's because when you fail to fulfill them, that's it. You can't become righteous under that system again. That's in the redemption of Jesus' blood. Make no mistake about it. God has never in any dispensation given a command, revealed a will and an expectation that the people He revealed it to could not possibly keep. Remember in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, the things that are revealed belong to us and and to our children that we may do all. Everything God tells us to do, we can always at any given time fulfill. And again, that's in every dispensation. And it's not just partial obedience, full obedience. Everything God has told us we can accomplish 
It's not like God reveals something to us and we say, well, I can, I can do that, that, and the other, but I may fall in this way because I might not be able to do this. You think about that on a congregational level. Because we try to deceive ourselves into to saying that as individuals, but think about if we were saying that as a congregational level. I know what God has revealed about the work, worship, and organization of the church. We can get the work and worship right, but I, I don't think that we're able to sustain that organization. None of us would stand for that. And it's the same thing with us individually. Everything God has required of us, we can do. Remember Noah in the patriarchal dispensation in verse 22 of Genesis 6 did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Also, in the patriarchal dispensation, Abraham had been obeying God since he was called out of this land to go into a land he did not know. And in Genesis 22, he was told to go sacrifice Isaac. And as soon as he was told that, he was obeying all the way to that mountain that God has picked out to him for him. But it wasn't until he raised his knife to slay his son that the angel stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear God. Full obedience. James calls that his work working together with his faith and faith being made perfect or complete. Full obedience. Under the Mosaic dispensation, Saul told Samuel after he said, I obeyed the Lord, but he didn't slay all the Amalekites. He kept the king. He kept some animals. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you obeyed partially, you will lose your throne. What's interesting is in Nehemiah, when they return from captivity in chapter 8, in verse 13, when you have uh, uh, the, the word of the Lord, Ezra, reading to them, it says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, in Nehemiah 8 and verse 13, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. Verse 14, They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now notice what is said in verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Notice, for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so. We read something interesting in Ezra 3 and verse 4. In the first year of their return, they kept that Feast of Tabernacles. That's the feast they were keeping here. But it says in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 17, that they had not kept the part which says they shall dwell in booths since the days of Joshua. Full obedience is what God requires. They did not say, well, we missed this over here, but that's okay. We'll just do it like we've been doing it. They kept fully the Word of God. In the Messianic age that we live in, Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. All things. Paul told the Thessalonians to hold fast the traditions, whether by word or our epistle. I want to tell you that God requires full obedience. And when we decide not to obey, it's not because we have an inability. Failure to keep the command does not equate with an insufficiency of our person to keep the commands. You know, people read scriptures like 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46 that says there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7 and in verse 20 that says there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they say, see, because the scripture says it, we will sin. That's not what we should be thinking of in those verses. Because what that does is it mixes up the cause and effect. Because God has said we will sin, then we will sin. It makes it a matter of prophecy. We've got to sin because God said we would. 
I want to tell you the only reason these scriptures speak about man sinning and there's not one man that hasn't sinned is because man sinned. God revealed it because it was true. It didn't become true because God prophesied it. Sin is always a matter of our choice. It's not an inability within us to keep God's law. 1 John 3 and verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. And we spoke about how God has revealed His law in a way that we can understand it. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Is He telling us to do something that is impossible to do? But sin is lawlessness. If it's possible to keep the commands of God, then we are completely able to avoid sin. It's not because of our nature. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, we've been created upright, but man has thought out many schemes, their own schemes. Romans said in verse 9, the Apostle Paul said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. If, if it was a part of his nature, then he was never alive. He was alive, though, at one point until he decided to disobey. You know, someone will say, you see there in Ephesians chapter 3 that the Bible tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. Well, from the very start of this, we need to understand the past tense, we were. He's not saying they are still. But he says, you see, it says by nature we're children of wrath. But that word nature is the Greek word phusis. Thayer says it means a mode of feeling and acting by which long habit has become nature. It's not inherent. And the very context bears this out. Why were we by nature children of wrath? We were dead in trespasses and sins. You did not keep a law that you very well could have kept. Why didn't we keep it? We've walked according to the course of this world. We've conformed to the world. We want to be like the world. So we didn't keep God's law. We were submitting to the power of Satan in his temptation and therefore had a disposition, a spirit of disobedience. We were rebellious. And why were we rebellious? Why did we want to be like the world and we didn't want to fulfill God's will? Because there were lusts of our flesh, desires of our mind that we wanted to fulfill. And you know what? We chose to fulfill them. It's not our nature. It's our actions according to our own will. We can always obey what God requires. Someone doubts that to a degree. I want to tell you, there is a case where a man always kept the will of God. And he was a man. Just like you and me, in the sense of sharing in flesh and blood, certainly he was deity as well, but there is no sense in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 if he was not a man like we are. We do not have a high priest who can, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. If he can sympathize, it means that he's like us in that regard. If he had an advantage then he can't sympathize with us. In chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, Concerning flesh and blood, he has likewise shared in the same. And this is why John, when he wrote 1 John 2 and verse 6, meant what, he, what he said. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. No excuses. I'm not saying that we have, but it's always our choice, and it's always a possibility. It can be a struggle, but Paul says... No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will make a way of escape. Be impressed by what God told Cain in Genesis 4 and verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Brethren, if God revealed something for us to do, you'd better believe that we can understand it, he wants us to understand it, 
And we can do exactly what it states. This is a fundamental thing that we always need to remember before we even crack open the Word of God. It's, it's, the, it's the presuppositions to our study of Scripture that He's told us so we can know and we can do, and we are completely able. Because if we don't have that I can attitude based on what Scripture has told us we can do, then we're not going to understand and we're not going to do. The lesson is yours. I hope that it was beneficial. Before we are released to our Bible classes, we'll be led in a word of prayer.